Turn with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to James chapter 5, verse 16, actually 13, I'm sorry, and as you turn there, well, let's read uh, this and then we will turn to God once again in prayer. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and, he, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you uh, again in prayer, again having uh, read your word to ask your blessing on the reading of it and the preaching of it, that we might obey it. Lord, we pray not only for our church today, but Lord, this morning I want to pray not specifically for another church, but uh, simply for your church in America. Lord, your word commands us in 1 Timothy 2 that we are to give prayers and intercessions and supplications and thanksgiving for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Lord, we know that this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of you, our God and Savior. And Father, um, we, we live in a, in a day and an age in, in this country where uh, maybe some of your church has turned more to social media, more to political organizations, more to worry than to prayer. Lord, we certainly know that folding our hands does far more than wringing them. And that we, um, we ought to bring all our concerns to you. Uh, Lord, our hope is not to be in any political system or party or person or office, but in you and in you alone. And we know that you reign over all things. Lord, we know that some of your, jo- your church is uh, rejoicing at the possibility of the outcome of this election. And that some of your church is fearful. Either way, Lord, is inconsequential. We know that we are... Our role is to pray, to pray that we might live godly, peaceful, evangelical, gospel-sharing lives. And so that is what we pray for today. Lord, we pray that um, that we would seek to be peacemakers, knowing that peacemakers are blessed by you in this, uh, this divided world. Lord, we know that you, um, that you desire for us to, uh, to pray for peace and that we might live peaceful and godly and quiet lives, Lord. And we ask that you would, uh, that you would do that in your church, that we would be more concerned uh, with, with living in ways that are honoring to you and adorn your gospel than being right or victorious or whatever else in an election. So God, make us a peaceful and praying church. Lord, we pray for Jess Davison and uh, the ministry that she's had here at Whitman with InterVarsity. Lord, we thank you for some of the praises that have uh, come recently. Lord, we know that 
Uh, her student leaders have quadrupled this year, and we're grateful for that. Lord, we know that there's been, there are two small groups, but we also know, Lord, that, uh, that she is leaving InterVarsity for, uh, to pursue some, uh, further her education. And so, Father, we ask for the ministry that has gone on there, that, that um, someone, uh, maybe even us, as we have supported her, would consider how to, uh, to step into that role and to, uh, to be a presence for the gospel there at Whitman, that we would take seriously our call and that our partnership uh, has not or should not just be with her, but also with that school as it is so close to us. And so, Lord, give us wisdom to know how to uh, to care for her and to care for this ministry. Lord, as she has asked us to pray uh, that there would be a culture of inviting among the students and the leaders, we, we ask for that, Lord, that, uh, that people, that, that students and, and the student leaders would be quick to invite others to Bible studies and to small groups, that they would be quick to invite others to church and to, uh, to plug people into churches as well. Lord, we pray the same for us, that we would be quick to not just invite people to church, but introduce people to Jesus and invite people to believe and to repent and to trust in him, Lord. And as she's praying for an additional small group this year, we pray along with her. Lord, as we turn now to your word, we ask that you would give us open eyes and soft hearts. Be glorified in this time, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are coming now uh, over the last two weeks to our final two messages in this uh, One Another's series. And the One Another we are coming to today is found here in James chapter 5, verse 16, and it is the call to pray for one another. I was talking to Jennifer this week, and um, I said, I really don't have any idea what to do this week. And she said, well, what's your one another? I said, it's a huge undertaking. It's pray for one another. And she goes, oh, that is big. (laughs) And it is big. And because it is big, uh, we are not going to be able in any way, shape, or form to exhaust this passage or to exhaust what prayer is or how to pray or the importance of prayer in in simply one sermon. And so today, we're just going to be taking like a 40,000-foot, very, very fast flyover of the topic of prayer. What is prayer? That is a, a big question. And if you just Google what is prayer, you'll probably find about a hundred answers. And, and many of them are, are good. Some of them are not. There are many uh, aspects that, that point us to what prayer is, but we're going to take a look at that today. I'm unsure, as our other authors, particularly the author who I ripped this quote off from, whether this quote is attributed to Martin Luther or Martin Luther King. It seems to have been attributed to both. And it it could possibly be neither, but here's the, the quotation. It is this, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And so today, as we consider the call to pray for one another, the importance of prayer in our own lives individually, but particularly as we pray for one another, cannot be overstated. As David Platt, uh, we heard from him in that short video on prayer, it's easy not to need prayer when we are distracting ourselves with television and devices and screens and social media and various other things. And, and yet, in the church, uh, I think um, oftentimes prayer is spoken of very highly 
but maybe both personally and corporately is given very little attention. It shouldn't be. I think there's a couple problems that lead to that. I don't offer that to shame any of us if we find ourselves prayerless or struggling with prayer. What we need is help. I think the problem is maybe two or even threefold. Number one, prayer isn't natural. Prayer isn't natural. We, uh, we gravitate towards the natural, things we can touch, things we can hold and feel and smell. It's, it's easy in, in those uh, to, to connect to the natural. But prayer is supernatural, and it requires work. And so it's difficult, and we should admit that it's difficult. And if you find it difficult, I would say join the club. That's okay. Secondly, most of us probably, at least if you're like me, have not been taught to pray. I spent years wishing that somebody would invite me into their prayer life to see how they prayed, to hear how they prayed, to to know what they prayed for, how often they prayed, how long they prayed for. If it was just random or if they actually prayed according to some kind of structure. And and I would say, well, I'm going to leave it at those two. Those are, I think, our two greatest hurdles in prayer. It's supernatural, not natural, and most of us haven't been taught well. I would say this as well, though, that... that, um, how good you feel about prayer is probably not a good barometer of where your spiritual life is. We all go through good and bad times, times where it uh, seems to be flourishing and times where it's more difficult. I would say a better barometer of our spiritual life is how regular our prayer is. And so today, I'm not going to be able to teach you how to pray. If you're interested in some resources on how to pray, uh, there was a series of, I think, four blog posts that I published over the, the last weeks. So you can find them at our website if you go to trinitywallawalla.org and go to the media tab uh, or go to the media page. You can find uh, my blog there. And, and in these, this series of four blogs, I kind of take you through uh, how I pray on a daily basis, what resources I use, how I organize my prayer time, and some of the things that have helped me out through the years. And so if, you, if you're looking for some help just actually in the day today of what your prayer life should look like, uh, I would suggest you go there. And before we get into a look at what prayer is, I want to talk just about one, though there are probably many, motivation for prayer. And I I got this from uh, John Onwichekwa's little book on prayer, but he speaks of a time when he was he was home. He was, I think he says he was looking for an ice cream scoop, and he couldn't find it. He, he hadn't looked very hard. He wanted to have a bowl of ice cream. So he calls out to his wife, and he asks her where the ice cream scoop is. And I think like probably most wives and moms, tired of being asked where everything is, she replied to him, what would you do if I weren't here? And he said, but you are. And so I'm asking now, I am not trying to uh, be overly critical of wives and moms who get tired of hearing over and over again, where's the ice cream scoop? Where's this? Where's that? Where's the TV remote? Where's my shoes? Who knows what it may be? But I will say the reason we ask is because we know that those people are present. And prayer, it, it under, I think the thing that greatly motivates prayer in our lives is the understanding that Jesus And God, through Jesus, is present with us. 
that we have not been left alone, that though we can't see him or feel him or touch him, he is present and he cares. And we can just but call out and say, Lord, where is or how is or why is? And he never gets frustrated of hearing from us and of our asking for him or from him. Well, we better get moving or time will run out, but today we're going to look at four things. We're going to look at what prayer is, we're going to look at what prayer is not, we're going to look at why we pray, and then we're going to look at some next steps. We're pretty far ahead on the outline there, and that's okay. So first, what prayer is? First, prayer is calling on God to come through on his promise. There's as close to a definition as I'm going to give you today as to what prayer is. And I think most of us probably would not have thought of that as a definition for prayer. In fact, I certainly would not have had I not read uh, on this topic. Um, But again, in John Onwachekwa's book, he gives credit to Gary Miller for this definition. And I love it. It is calling on God to come through on his promise. From Genesis To revelation, prayer is calling upon God to come through on his promise. In fact, we see that that phrase that people were calling upon God for the first time in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. And, And the picture there is that God had created Adam and Eve. He placed them in the garden. He gave them everything they need and told them, don't eat of this one tree. For in the day you do, you will surely die. Of course, we know the story. They eat of the tree. God does not kill them that day. He kills a lamb instead. He clothes them with its skin, and and he curses the world and curses the serpent. And, and, And now Adam and Eve are living in this world that's been subjected to evil and sin and been cursed by God. But in this cursing, And in this decree of discipline upon the people of God for disobedience to God, God makes a promise. And he promises them a son. And and in God's word, we we see this as uh, the word seed. He promises this son who will come and make all things right. Well, immediately upon the heels of this promise for a son that would fix all things, we have the story of Cain and Abel. And we know that Cain and Abel bring sacrifices to God. Abel's were acceptable to God and Cain's were not for whatever reason. Any absolute statement on why uh, uh, Cain's offering was unacceptable to God is uh, speculation, but for some reason or another, God did not accept Cain's sacrifice, and so Cain killed his brother Abel. Neither of them could possibly be the son. Uh, one dead, one as wicked as his parents. And so we move along down the story, and Seth is born to Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve think maybe this is the promised son. But rather than the world getting better, the story from Genesis 3 all the way to Genesis 7 at the flood is just the unfolding of the wickedness of people, culminating in Lamech, a man who is boastful and arrogant against God and happy to slay people created in the image of God. And it is in that context of the wickedness of the world that the people in Genesis 4 begin to call upon God. What are they calling upon God to do? To fulfill his promise. Lord, we have gone from bad to worse. The world is a wicked place. 
please send this son. Well, he doesn't send the son immediately. In fact, he calls a man named Abram, and he says, I'm going to make you a nation, and from the nation that will come from you will come the son. And after a couple thousand years of history, we finally come to the book of Matthew, where the son is born. And the son does set things right, but not ultimately yet. Rather than coming and slaying all of his enemies and killing everyone who opposes him and and only calling the righteous to himself, which by the way, nobody is righteous, he does the exact opposite of, in many ways, what we would expect of this conquering son. He doesn't conquer people who have sinned against God. No, what he conquers is death, the very consequence uh, that, that came as a result of our sin. And so rather than slaying all his enemies, he allows his enemies to slay him. He's not like the rest of the sons. He has no earthly father. He does not inherit a sin nature from his father. And so he lived, born of a virgin, he lives a perfectly sinless life. Being God from eternity past, the creator of all things, who takes on flesh himself, who perfectly obeys, who, who, who does in 40 days in the wilderness what Israel couldn't do in 40 years in the wilderness, who perfectly obeys every law. Adam and Eve had one law to obey, and they could not. He had 600 and then some, and he obeys every single one perfectly. When he does not deserve to die, when he does not deserve any punishment, when he does not deserve any cursing, he goes to the cross in our place. And he dies the death that we should have died. That from the very promise of the seed... To Adam and Eve, when a lamb died in their place and they were clothed with its skin to cover their nakedness, the lamb of God sent for us dies in our place instead of us so that we can be clothed not with his skin, but with his righteousness. And victoriously, he's raised from the dead three days later, and he is back to his position of ruling and reigning over all things as creator, sustainer, and sovereign Lord. And he says, I'm here. Just talk to me. I'm listening. I'm the way by which you have been restored to the Father. But ultimately, the problem of sin still has not been fixed. And so now we fast forward from the beginning of our Bibles to from the middle of our Bibles to the end of our Bibles, Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. We still live in a sin-ridden, broken, evil world. We still struggle against the sinfulness of our own flesh and fight our own sinfulness. And so to encourage us, God gives us, uh, through John, a, a revelation of what the end of all things will look like. When the son comes not to die, but to reign victoriously, when he does come to conquer, when he comes to set everything right and restore perfect order and ultimately perfect righteousness. And so we see that Jesus one day will come again, that all evil will be punished, all things will be set right, 
And those who have trusted him and have been clothed with his righteousness will spend an eternity with him in perfect joy. And what is John's message? What is John's final statement at the end of this revelation of this seed, this son coming to set all things right? Revelation 22, verse 20 says, He who testifies to these things says, that is Jesus, not John, who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And here's how John closes the book. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, fulfill your promise. Come, do what you have said you will do. Read through the Psalms. In fact, I was reading Psalm, I believe it was 25 this morning, and and how often the word remember comes up. When when God is being called upon to remember, it's not because he's forgotten his promises. It's because from Genesis through Revelation, prayer is calling upon God to fulfill his promises. It means we need to know his promises. It means we need to be in his word and call on him to do what he has promised us he would do. He doesn't always do it the way we think we should but he will always fulfill his promises because he is faithful and he cannot deny himself. He cannot tell a lie and he has all power to accomplish all things that he has promised. But it is that Savior, that being clothed in his righteousness who died in our place, it is trusting him and his righteousness and his obedience to God and not our own that gives us access to God, that makes him present, that allows us to any time, day or night, call out to him for help. Charles Spurgeon said, only a son of the king would dare wake him at two in the morning for a cup of water. And that is the kind of relationship we have with the king of kings. That no matter what we face, no matter what difficulties there are in the world we live in, we can approach him. If you have trusted Jesus for for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, to be righteous in your place, you have absolute, unfettered access to the King of Kings. But if you have not, you do not. And I would encourage you to come to God through him today, trusting not your own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ on your behalf. First, we see that prayer is calling upon God to come through on his promise. Secondly, uh, prayer is depending upon God to do what we cannot. Uh, I'm not going to look at Ephesians chapter 3, for, verses 14 through 20, but in these verses, Paul is praying, and he closes this prayer. Well, he, the prayer is that God would strengthen them with power through his spirit, that they might comprehend the, the love of God. And then he says, Now to him who is able to do far, abun- far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Paul's writing scripture. It's probably a conversation for another day, but I think he knows he's writing scripture. The very word of God that does the work of God, and yet his response after writing of the riches of what God has done for us in Christ is to pray. 
He knew that it was not him that would do anything in the life of the Ephesian church, not even his pen, but God who would. And so he stops and prays. In 1 Corinthians, uh, where Paul reminds us uh, in, this, in this church that is attracted to leaders and prideful about what leaders they follow, he says, hey, it doesn't matter if you follow Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. None of us matter. We're all just servants. It's Jesus who has saved us. And he said, so Paul, one of us watered, one of us planted, one of us reaped. It doesn't matter because he who plants and he who waters is nothing, but only God who gives the increase. Which means whatever spiritual good you've ever been in anybody's life, in this church or around the globe, is not because of us, it's because of God. And so we are reminded, uh, probably daily in our own sin, that we can't even get our own lives and hearts right, and so we're never going to be able to do that for anyone else. Circumstances are out of our control. I'm convinced that control, if you're a control freak like me, uh, remind yourself of this often, control's an illusion. If you don't think control's an illusion, you can't even control yourself. Stop your heart for two beats right now. Go ahead. I'll pause while you do it. We are in control of nothing. It is God who is in control of everything. And so we pray as an act of confession, to, uh, of dependence upon God to do what only he can do. So whether it's elections, church ministry, the faith of our children, a wayward spouse, a job we hope for, the birth of a child, a wedding, whatever it is, from the hardest things in life to the most joyous, we pray because God and God alone is in control. And this reminds us you know, sometimes we think, well, I, I know I'm praying, but I also need to do something. Oh, brothers and sisters, prayer is doing something. Thirdly, we pray, or what prayer is, is it is to be both private and corporate. Again, I'm not going to labor uh, the point here. Most of us probably know Matthew 6, 7 through 13. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And one of the things he does is he instructs the church that their prayers are to be in private. Don't be like the hypocrites, the Pharisees who love to stand on the street corners and be prayed in public, but, or pray in public to be seen. But go into your closet, close the door, go into your room, close the door and pray there. This is, however, not an absolute statement against public prayer. Because Acts is filled with public prayer. Acts is filled also with corporate prayer. Paul prays for the churches to whom he writes. Prayer is both to be uh, private, we should all pray on our own, but it is also to be corporate because immediately after giving the, the disciples instructions on how to pray, he does not say, then pray like this, my Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give me this day my daily bread. No, we all know the, the, the Lord's Prayer, right? All of the pronouns are plural. And the vast majority of prayer in the book of Acts is corporate. It is the church gathering together to pray in homes, in groups, but also as a church. We are to pray not only privately, but corporately. Now, quickly, let's look at what prayer is not. Uh, what I put in your outline there, don't write it down if you haven't yet, uh, I put uh, what prayer is not. And then I said simply talking to God. But this would have been better merely. Oh, there's not a blank there. Cross out simply and write merely. Prayer is not merely talking to God. 
It is that. It is certainly no less than that, but it is much more than that. And what we pray and how we pray matters. When the disciples ask Jesus, show us the Father, he says, look no further. I'm right here. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But when they say, Lord, teach us to pray, he does not say, look no further. You've been talking to me. Talk no further. I'm right here. No. What he does is he teaches them to pray. He invites them into the garden with him to pray. What we pray and how we pray matters. Prayer is not simply talking to God. It is more than that. It is talking to God. Don't hear me wrong here. I'm not saying it is uh, less than that. I'm simply saying it is much, much more than that. Prayer is also not a way to get what we want. Prayer is not a way to get what we want. Matthew 26, 39 Most of us probably know this verse. It's the night before Jesus is going to be betrayed and crucified. And what does he pray for? Father, let this cup, this this cup that is filled with his death, crucifixion, the the wrath of God. If we look at the prophets, this cup he's referring to is, is the cup that is filled with the wrath of God that he is to drink down to the dregs. And he says, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Does the cup pass from him? Does not. And if not every prayer of Jesus is answered, we should not expect, at least in that way, and that's a much more complicated uh, theological point than our prayer, but if Jesus is told no in this prayer, then we should be told no to. By the way, what he wanted was something greater than to let that cup pass from him. What he wanted was to be obedient to his Father, to glorify his Father. And so he went willingly, graciously, and obediently. But I put this point in here, not because God doesn't want to give us what we want. He certainly does, and we're going to see that in the next point. He loves to give us what we want. Scripture is clear from the, from the parables about not giving, if a father won't give a son a stone or a snake, then God wants to give us good things to Romans, where if he has not withheld his own son, there is no good thing that he won't withhold from us. I think far too often we we think of prayer, at least I do, this is a confession, Uh, far too often I think of prayer as trying to pry something I need out of the hands of a stingy God. Oh, that is so not true. Uh, we've heard people all say, you know, oh, if you pray it through, right? Maybe it's an old saying. Just, just pray it through. Whatever you're going through, whatever you need, just pray it through. Like prayer is somehow a battering ram that we use to break down the gates of heaven to steal from the storehouses of God. No, he has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has not withheld from us his son. Why would he not give us also every good thing with him? God delights to give us what is good for us, But as I tell my children, no, at times, because sometimes what they want isn't good for for them, sometimes he tells us no as well. But I simply offer this here because there is certainly a trend, particularly in American evangelicalism, to view prayer as an opportunity to manipulate God to do what I want him to do. It's just not the biblical picture of prayer. 
When I pray, I am more moved by my prayers than God is. That does not mean God does not act in, result, uh, or in response to our prayers. Again, we're about to look at that. But I love the picture uh, of prayer being like I'm stuck in a lifeboat or I'm stuck in a, a, in a boat in the middle of a lake. And somebody comes along the shore and they, they see me out there and I throw the rope to shore and they tie it to a tree and I pull the rope. Would any of us say we're pulling the shore to ourselves or are we're pulling ourselves to shore? Prayer is much like that. It, it is my spiritual lifeline by which I do not pull God to my will but where I pull myself to his. So why pray? This might seem in contrast to what I just said, but it's not. Why pray? Because, number three on your outline there, which only has one point under it, because God likes to bless in response to prayer. God likes to bless in response to prayer. Genesis chapter 20, verse 7. Again, uh, I won't turn there, uh, but... Um, the, the story is that for the second time now, Abraham has lied to a king, once to Pharaoh, now to Abimelech, about who Sarah is. Oh, they're going to think she's beautiful, and they're going to kill me so that they can have her. So I'm going to tell a half-truth and say that she's my sister. And uh, Abimelech does what Pharaoh does. Abimelech brings Sarah into his own home. She's beautiful. He desires her. He wants to marry her. And so he, he, uh, he, he brings Sarah into her home, not or his home, not knowing that she is the wife of Abraham. And God warns Abimelech in a dream, saying, she is not yours. She belongs to Abraham. Give her back or I'll kill you. Now God is being gracious to Abimelech here. And in this dream, God tells Abimelech, take her to this man. He's a prophet. He'll pray for you. And you'll live. Now God could have in this dream said to Abimelech, just return her and you're good to go. But no, what God said is take her, take her back to Abraham, return her to him. He's a prophet. He'll pray for you and then I will bless you. Why does God do that? Because he wants to act for Abimelech's good in response to prayer. God wants both Abimelech and Abraham, Abraham to know who they are to depend upon. And so we pray because God likes to bless in response to prayer. And so it's not an op, it's not, it, it, prayer isn't something we get to use to control God. But I wonder how many good things we may have missed out on simply because we didn't ask. So what now? Point number four on your outline. What now? What do we do with this? Well, I have two suggestions that I'm going to recommend to you today. Uh, number one is we pray corporately. Corporate prayer. We can uh, advance well down the list of slides there. Yeah, there we go. Corporate prayer. Uh, the Spanish language uh, ministry is, is doing this, and I'm so grateful for that. Uh, they have a corporate prayer meeting Thursday nights where anybody who wants comes together and, and prays together. I would love to see us have a time of corporate prayer. And I think at least in my mind, and I would hope in all of our minds, that after Sunday mornings, this should be the second highest priority in the life of our church, is to gather and to pray. 
And by the way, it's a great opportunity to learn how to pray, to simply pray with other people, to hear them pray, to hear the things that they pray for, and to, to see how they use Scripture to inform their prayers. Jim Cimbala, uh, pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, which is well known as a very praying church, early on in his ministry, uh, there was a Sunday evening service, and there was a pastor in town, uh, I believe from Australia, and Jim just invited this pastor impromptu on the spot to come up on stage and, and sh- uh, share a word with the congregation. Jim recalls that the man came up to uh, the microphone, leaned in, and said this, You can tell how popular a church is by who is there on Sunday morning. You can tell how popular a preacher is by who is there on Sunday nights. By the way, churches used to view Sundays as the Lord's day, not the Lord's hour, and so they would make the most of the day, including the church in Acts, saw it as the Lord's day, and they worshiped at length, and so many churches used to have a Sunday night service uh, for more of the teaching of God's word and fellowship. But that's beside the point. Let me get back to it. You can tell how popular a church is by who is there on Sunday morning. You can tell how popular a preacher is by who is there on Sunday night. And you can tell how popular Jesus is by who's at the prayer meeting. And then he took his seat. I don't think he's far off. I'm not trying to guilt anyone here. I'm simply saying that we ought to view prayer as one of the absolute highest priorities We think about how can we reach Walla Walla Valley. We should be thinking about how we can reach out to the people in the valley here. And we should act. We should go. We are commanded to go with the gospel. But I think if you were to read through the book of Acts, and I would highly encourage you to do so, what you'll find is the church prayed and went, prayed and went, prayed and went, prayed and went. And it would be a good model for us to follow. Because we'd be calling on God, not only to fulfill his promise in calling sinners to himself, but to do what we cannot do, namely calling sinners to himself. So corporate prayer, that would be a a great encouragement. And secondly, uh, prayer guide. As you head out today, there's a table by the door that has these in it. Y'all, most of you... uh, Uh, graciously agreed to have your pictures taken. We Facebook stalked some of you, and some still don't have pictures. But this is a pictorial directory of everybody in the church. It does not have contact info, no email addresses, addresses, phone numbers. If you want that, uh, let us know, and we'll get you access. Well, we're working on getting everybody to access access to that information in CCB, well, at least members. And I don't say that to, uh, to put pressure on anybody, but, but we do feel like in this day and age, we're accountable to be careful with people's information. And so we're working to make uh, phone numbers and contact info available to all members uh, in Community Church Builder. Um, but what you'll find here is uh, just page by page pictures uh, and names of everybody in the church. My encouragement to you would be to get one of these, take it, and use it as a prayer guide. Pray through one page a day. There's some blank space down here. You can write down prayer requests for people. Call them. Find them at church and say, I've been praying for you. Is there anything I can pray specifically for? Our prayers here don't have to be long. They just have to be biblical. And if you don't know what to pray for somebody, what I do when I'm praying for you all, as I work through one of these and I don't know what to pray, I pray for whatever the sermon on Sunday is going to be. 
So I've been praying for you that you would be prayerful, that we would be praying together, that we would have prayer as a high priority. Uh, Pray something from Scripture. Pray something God's been teaching you. But pray. And here's the other thing I would encourage. I would encourage everybody to start with the page that they're on. Here's why. Not because I want you to pray for yourself first, though that's not a bad thing, but because if all of us start with the page that we're on and then pray for one page, put it by the coffee pot, pray for one page a day while your coffee's brewing, what that'll do is that'll stagger the start. Wouldn't it be cool to know that each of us was being prayed for every single day by the other members of the church? How awesome is that? Take this, put it somewhere, be faithful to pray for one another. I pray for you. I pray that the church will be a praying church. And with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. That you have sent your son, that he has brought the solution to sin and death, and that by trusting his righteousness for us, we can be saved. Lord, we thank you that because of him, because of his righteousness, we are ushered into your presence and we can, uh, we, we can come to you at two in the morning and ask for anything we need, but we can call out for help simply knowing that you are there. Lord, may we be not only a praying church, but we, may we be pr- uh, a praying church who prays individually and prays together. Lord, teach us that we don't have to, it's not that our prayers have to be long or worded right in order for, uh, for them to be effective, but to simply be biblical and to trust you for the outcome. And so we ask that you would do much in us uh, because we pray, but mostly because you desire to glorify yourself, not only among us, but in the world. And so use us in these ends for your glory and for our good. And we ask it in Jesus' name.